I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. This week, we've got a promo from Julia over at the Always Time for True Crime podcast. We'll start with that. Take it away, Julia. Hi, guys. This is Julia, the host of Always Time for True Crime. Each week, I cover a different case about murder, missing persons, or serial killers. My podcast strives to bring attention to lesser-known cases and give you guys some new true crime stories. So go give it a listen. You can listen to Always Time for True Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Stitcher, and more. Thanks for that, Julia. So click subscribe. Tell Julia how much you love her. Make sure you leave a rating for her. Um, We are recording this on a very rare bank holiday Friday in the UK. It's unheard of. (laughs) It really is. Our bank holidays are always on a Monday and they've changed it to a Friday because of VE Day. Because they couldn't possibly give us two. (laughs) Yeah, you're (laughs) not having an extra one. (laughs) Yeah, they're not not doing this to be nice. It's a case of, you know, going, oh, VE Day, people are going to expect the day off. What we'll do is we'll move bank holiday Monday. Yes. It's strong me because the only Fridays I'm used to having as bank holidays are Good Friday. Yeah, that is the only one. Not that, you know, all days aren't merging into one with lockdown, of course. <laughs> I'm just delighted because I've actually, I've got today off work and I've actually booked three days off next week. You won't know what to do with yourself. I, I won't because I can't fucking go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to not having to go and sit at a desk and work. That'd be quite nice. Yeah, and I'm hoping that the weather is nice. Yes. We're supposed to have sunshine today, but it's overcast and cloudy. Fuckers. I've just bought a deck chair. A deck chair? <laughs> That's why. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be why you in your deck chair. I know, right. <laughs> so, um, what are we doing this week? Mostly, we've been baking and failing at baking. Yeah. We say failing. It's not that the food wasn't edible. It was all lovely. Um, it was just that I kept making the wrong thing. <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, in my head, I was making scones for my mum and dad because they they were having a socially distant uh, VE day celebration today with neighbours where they were all going to sit outside their own driveways basically and eat scones. I should do. You should get more English than that. <laughs> I was just thinking, could it be more British? <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was making them scones but in my haste to make the scones during my break um, I picked up the wrong recipe and instead made shortbread. Yep. But didn't realise that I'd made shortbread. And then it was in the oven, I was going, they're not rising, I've made them wrong, I'll make them again. And so I made another batch of shortbread. And while you were making the second batch of what you thought was scone mix, you asked me to check the first batch. And I opened the oven and went, um, these look like shortbread, not scones. <laughs> <laughs> in fairness, it's the same set of ingredients, it's just slightly different quantities. It's right, to be fair, it's yeah, true. It really is. So I did eventually make scones, so... That's good, but we've now got more biscuits than we know what to do with. Yep, and to uh, because obviously we're not overweight enough, um, <laughs> I decided to make some fudge. Yeah. Which is currently not setting in the fridge. Yes. And looks like it's going to have to be used as some kind of lovely fudge type sauce for ice cream. Yes. That's good for me though, because I don't like ice cream, so therefore that means I won't eat it, which might help to stop my rapidly expanding waistband. Because <laughs> <laughs> of all I seem to be doing during lockdown is just eating and drinking. Yes, indeed. Um, we've had a couple of really nice reviews this week. So Jay Barnes got in touch via the Facebook group um, and he gave us a list of potential cases for us to cover, all based on the Wirral, so Merseyside, where we're from. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I've got a couple on that list that I had as potential future episodes, but there's a few more that I wasn't aware of, so I'm going to be looking into those. 
Jay also said, still loving the podcast and great to see you reaching a wider audience and getting deserved positive feedback. Thank you, Jay. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. That's lovely. Ariel over at Malice Podcast has left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and she says, Dan and Elaine are witty and the episodes well-researched and engaging. Wonderful voices to deliver the narratives. Can't praise highly enough. Love, Ariel from Malice. Thank you, Ariel. Um, we've also been interviewed by Ariel for her new podcast and we'll be sure to let everyone know when that's live. And I have to say, Ariel, I love you. You're an absolute joy to <laughs> chat to. I felt like I've known you forever. And I said to Dan afterwards, I said, I'm quite glad that I hadn't listened to lots of your podcast prior to doing the interview. Because I would have been really intimidated by how <laughs> fucking smart you are. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much. It was a joy to chat to you. Yes, I'd listened to a couple of them and hadn't let on. But uh, yeah, she's very, very intelligent. Comes across so. Yeah. And the hour that we spent talking to her flew by. It did. And I've now listened to a load of your episodes and I love them. <laughs> so anyone who hasn't already listened to Malice, get on it straight away. Especially if, like me, you love the psychological implications mm. um, of true crime. As to, you know, how did they get there? Because that's the bit that um, Ariel really delves into and she does it so well. If you'd like to leave us a review, and we would love you to leave us a review if we're honest, you can do so at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. And that's STC as in Sublime True Crime. Which is brilliant for people like me who can't pronounce the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. After this, we are going to record our new Patreon episode, which is going to be Sublime Extra Time. And all we're going to do is have, I was going to say an off-the-record chat, but it's going to be probably an unedited chat. <laughs> yeah about the story and bits and pieces so please join us for that yeah it's uh, basically the bits that i get annoyed over where i've done loads of additional research and then you've gone no no i'm not putting that in <laughs> for whatever reason and i'm like oh, out in the corner because i'm going oh, i've just done all this bloody research so yeah so it'll basically be me going and did you know <laughs> yes so we've got that to look forward to you can hear that over at patreon.com forward slash sublime true crime now, moving on to this week's episode. This week we have the body in the bags killer. 40-year-old Glennis Johnson from Grangetown was a well-known sex worker who worked Cardiff stock areas in the early 1970s. In the early hours of the morning of 21st of June, 1971, Glennis was approached by a man and went with him to an area of waste ground in Wolf Street. It was the last thing she ever did. Once they got there, Glennis was viciously attacked as her punter used a broken bottle to slash her throat. As she fell to the floor, the assault continued as the attacker violently slashed away at her body, leaving the body laying face down with over 20 slash wounds across her neck and chest. Oh, God. Apparently, I'd read somewhere else as well that one of the slash wounds, think, by her neck was five inches yeah. um, across. So it's like really, really deep. deep. The attack was so ferocious that Glennis was nearly decapitated. The attacker fled into the daybreak. Just hours after the murder, a phone call was made to police. This was four years before Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, began his campaign of terror. The call that was received was short. Quote, Have you found the body yet? There will be four more. This is the Ripper. End quote. Police found the mutilated body of Glennis Johnson later that morning. By then, they had also traced the call. It had come from a nearby steel factory, the British Steel Corporation East Moors Works in Tremorva. Detectives quickly arrested 24-year-old Malcolm Green, 
who was at the factory working his early morning shift as a crane operator. Colleagues described how he had turned up for work that morning, shaking and sweating. When police checked the times, he had arrived at the factory shortly before they had received the phone call. What they didn't realise at the time is that Green had arrived at work in blood-stained clothes and had washed them clean in the showers at work. Now the next part of this is all over the place because there's so many different reports. Oh, really is. Age just 12 or 18 or maybe even 20, depending on what report you read, Malcolm Green witnessed a horrific scene, or didn't witness it, depending on what you read, of a train running over his brother, Roger, decapitating him under the wheels as he was on his way to a football match in Reading. I have to just interject there that the amount of discrepancy between all the different reports is just phenomenal. It's, it's absolutely frustrating. It really is. Yeah. He then had to identify the body in a mortuary, and I'd argue that no matter how old you are, whether you've witnessed it or not, that is always going to be a head fuck. Absolutely. Um, but that does mean that if it's true, he couldn't have been 12, because he would have been far too young to be able to be responsible to be um, identifying the body. And seeing as how Roger was said to be age 20 at the time of his death, and Roger was the older brother, I think we can safely assume that Malcolm was 18. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go with that. Roger was the fourth of 12 children, and Malcolm was the fifth. So you would assume that they would be quite close? Yeah, especially if there's only two years between them. Yes. His workmates described him as a weird loner. What they didn't say was just how dim he appeared to be. Even Green's ex-wife, Marilyn Stevenson, went on to say many years later that she was not surprised when police told her what her husband had done. Quote, I remember him saying, I wonder what it's like to murder. It stuck in my mind and sometimes I think I was lucky it wasn't me. End quote. I think she was very lucky it wasn't her. Yeah. At the time of Glennis Johnson's murder, Green's soon-to-be ex-wife was in hospital recovering from a miscarriage. Classy. Mm. Upon first being arrested, Green admitted to the murder and gave a statement to police. Quote, I started walking home by myself. I had had a lot to drink and wanted to sober up. At the bottom of Butte Street, I was approached by this woman. She asked me if I was interested in business. She started screaming and pulling my clothes. I lost my temper and exploded. The next thing I remember was walking home, end quote. Despite his initial admission, Green went on to deny any involvement in the murder. Despite his earlier confession, as well as the circumstantial evidence that was already piled up against him. So this frustrates me when they admit to something straight away and then go back and say, oh, no, no, I didn't admit to that. I suppose, devil's advocate, did he make his admission on tape recorder or camera or whatever at the time? Or did police say that he'd admitted it? And then afterwards, when they're actually documenting it, they then say, no, I didn't. You know, obviously, you know, the police do a great job, but there are people within the police force. Certainly in the past, it's been known where they've planted evidence or claimed that there have been confessions that haven't been true. Should point out that we've been watching Life on Mars recently. Yes. Which is a, um, <laughs> a BBC TV programme set in 1973. It's brilliant. About police. And there is a lot of that going on. Yeah. Just beating confessions out of people randomly. Yes. He had several cuts across his hands, cuts that he told police were the result of falling over as he was on his way to work. The reality was that the cuts were caused by the bottle he used to kill Glennis. Not only that, but forensic evidence started to come in too. Glennis had a rare blood type, traces of which were found on Green's boots. To make things worse for the factory worker, he also had a rare blood type himself, and his blood was found on Glennis's body. How's your luck? Mm. 
Police decided to search Green's flat, looking for more evidence. What they found was a rolled up carpet which had been manipulated into a buttoned up shirt and suit jacket to make a crude dummy. A knife had been stabbed through the left pocket of the jacket. Well, that's not weird and scary at all, is it? It's limey. And this was when he was still living with his wife. Oh, God, it was, wasn't it? So, does she, I mean, obviously she's in the hospital at the moment, but is that normally there in, in like the spare room? Go stab your murder dummy if you're feeling a bit angry. <laughs> Where's Doug the Rug? <laughs> I love that, Doug the Rug. <laughs> Despite all of this, at his trial, which took place at Glamorgan Assizes in Cardiff, Green pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. The jury disagreed, and after seven days, he was jailed for life. His sentence started in November 1971. Fantastic. Case closed. Yep. End of story. Bad hair locked up. And that's it. <laughs> the shortest episode we've ever done. Very short episode. Yeah, no, that's not true. Hang on. 18 years later, in 1989, psychiatrists deemed that Green was no longer a threat to society. He'd spent his last few years in Layhill Open Prison near Bristol. Well, they didn't have any rugs in jail. <laughs> still only 42 years of age, Green still had a life to live. Knowing that it would be hard for an ex-con to find work, Green had applied himself whilst inside, taking several different academic courses before his release. He'd been allowed to leave the prison to attend college classes at the nearby Filton Technical College, apparently excelling in A-level biology. There, he met Helen Barnes, who went on to become his girlfriend. Now, if you were on day release from prison, how do you meet someone who becomes your girlfriend? Presumably at college. Yeah, no, I understand that. But there must come a point where you say, oh, will you be my girlfriend? And she turns around and says, oh, yeah, let's go out to dinner tonight. And you go, oh, I can't go out to dinner tonight. I've got to get back to the cell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think that you would have got to know each other well enough and talked about your pasts enough by that stage that you would already know that. I wonder how far in to a relationship you'd have to be before as you're mentally going through the pros and cons of the person, that murder a street worker 18 years ago becomes acceptable because they've served their time. I mean, and I know some people keep that type of thing, they keep it secret forever, don't they? Yep. They just don't tell for years and years and years. It, it does boggle the brain. You know, mm. when you think about your own relationship issue, you go, oh, at what point do I say that, you know, I had a really bad breakup or that this happened to me, mm. you know, with the big stuff. As I say to friends, isn't it? You know, I always say to friends who are dating, hide the crazy. <laughs> Just for a while, you know? Because yeah. you know, I've got friends who, you know, they, they go on the first date and go, with this all of this everything. information. Yeah, this is all of my life's history. And mm. of course, the, the bloke called the girl goes, Jesus Christ, and runs away. So you have to sort of take it in stages, don't you? If, you know, hide the crazy, release it slowly so that you've got a chance to get to know the person before you then mm. show them exactly what what's gone on in your life. Having said that, if you have served time for murder and you're out free and looking to date, I think it's only fair that you kind of bring that up sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think ideally before pregnancy. Yes. Or moving in. Yes. Yes. In October 1989, Malcolm Green walked free from Layhill Open Prison for the last time. He quickly found somewhere to live, renting a room at 11 Luxton Street in Bristol, and quickly struck up a friendship with Clive Tully, who also rented a room there. Clive was just 24 years old and had been born and raised in New Zealand. Green took the youngster under his wing 
and they soon became best friends, to the point where Clive spent Christmas with Green and Helen. Clive had been working for a building company based in Bristol to help fund his self-proclaimed world tour. His site foreman, Michael Higgins, also lived at number 11 Luxton Street. <laughs> the more we get into this case, the bigger this property seems to get. Sounds like a student house, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. When I first started reading it, I thought, oh, someone is renting a room with a landlady. Yeah, the more it goes on, there's more and more rooms. It's like a hotel. Mm. <laughs> and although the two were said to be friends, Higgins said that they had fallen out after Tully didn't get paid a Christmas bonus. So upset was Clive, apparently, that he walked off site halfway through a job and was subsequently fired. A few weeks later, at the start of the following year, Clive announced that he was going to Spain for a few weeks to catch some winter sun. Catching a lift from Green, Clive got the ferry from Plymouth and headed off. Clive was away for a few weeks before returning, unexpectedly, in the middle of March. He headed back to his friend's house, knocking on Green's door and revealing that he was penniless with nowhere to stay. Asking if he could stay for a few days, Green readily agreed that Clive could sleep on his sofa and he would stay at his girlfriend's house in the nearby fish ponds area. Why is he letting him sleep on the sofa and not just changing the bed linen and letting him sleep in the bed if he's not going to be there? And that's bizarre, isn't it? It's weird. I've had people stay at mine when I've been away and it's like, obviously, fresh bedding. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Don't sleep in my bed. Actually, don't sleep on the sofa. There's a space on the floor <laughs> next to there's Doug a, the Rug. There's a dog bed. <laughs> oh, Doug the Rug. <laughs> Clive was never seen alive again. Two days later, on the 22nd of March, in a lay-by off the A467 bypass near Rogerston, Newport, two sports holders were spotted by Linda Vines, a schoolteacher from Caerphilly. She reported them to police, believing it was unusual to see. When police checked them, they found that one contained two arms and two legs, and the other a torso. There was no sign of the hands or the head. Ugh, that's pretty grim. The press soon got wind of the discovery, and as police hadn't been able to identify the body, the case was quickly dubbed that of the body in the bag's killer. Four days further on, an Andrew Newbury, a lambing assistant... <laughs> Is that like some type of sheep midwife? <laughs> <laughs> ...who worked at Newbury Fair Orchard Farm, stumbled across something in one of his fields. Thinking it was a red and white football, as he got closer, he bent down and put his hand inside it. He soon realised the gruesome truth. He felt something that, quote, appeared to be a nose, oh, end quote. Feel quite sick. Ugh. It was a head and two hands wrapped in a bloody sheet. The remains of Clive Tully were only identified when a graphic artist working for a newspaper mocked up a computer-enhanced photograph of the victim. And this was 1989, so that's some going as well. They were in the early stages then, weren't they? They were. Police wasted no time in connecting him to Malcolm Green. After all, he was a close friend and had lived in the same house as recently released murderer Green. Green was arrested at his girlfriend's house on the 30th of March at 11.25pm. When questioned about the case, Green simply said, quote, I know nothing about Clive Tully's murder, although I do know Clive Tully, end quote. As with Glennis, though, Green had left plenty of forensic evidence behind, including leaving two fingerprints on the bag containing Clive Tully's arms, as well as on the bag containing his head. Police also searched his house and found bloodstains on the ceiling. The bloody ceiling. What the fuck? How the hell do you do that? He was just obviously very enthusiastic. They also found bloodstains on the door, the coffee table, the Venetian blinds and the sofa in the sitting room. It sounds like it was pretty much everywhere. Yeah. 
The easiest mm. saber they didn't find blood. Yes. Not underneath the coffee table. Yes. None in the poor bastard's torso, by the sound of it. Oh, no. Green had made an attempt to cover up the murder, though. He'd ripped up a square of carpet and cleaned the floor with detergent. He'd also covered the bloodstain with a rug. Oh, that'll do it. No forensic scientist is <laughs> going to move a rug. Was it Doug the rug? Or was it just a random rug? It's like when you ask teenagers to clean their rooms. I've done it. You've just shoved everything under the bed. I know. Oh, my God. I know that very well. <laughs> yes. There was also a trail of blood leading upstairs to a spotless bathroom. Which I assume is where he did the actual dismembering. Makes sense if he's made it spotless. Yeah. And then thought, well, I've done that bit. I'll get around to the rest of it tomorrow. I'll just put a rug over it for <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> Fucking hell. The police felt that they certainly had enough evidence to charge him with murder. In fact, Green had been identified by Robert Clark, a florist, who had seen him in the lay-by where two of the bags were found. Clark told police that he'd been driving down the A467 bypass, heading towards Risca on the 21st of March 1990, and had seen a man standing beside a light-coloured car. Green's girlfriend had a light-coloured mini-metro, which Green often borrowed. Now, I need to interject at this point and say, what the <laughs> fuck? Honestly, he took his girlfriend's car to cart around his little blood-stained body parts. Yep. I'd be livid. I mean, aside from the whole murdering somebody <laughs> for a boyfriend, which is not desirable behaviour, but to then cart it round in my car. should just say that, as we were discussing this case earlier, before we started recording, what was it you said to me? If you ever borrow my car to carry around murder victim body, it's like that. I think you're missing the biggest scope. <laughs> I think I said, yeah, I would never want to drive that car again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I wouldn't, but that isn't obviously the main point to be taken from me. <laughs> Thinking that he had broken down, Clark recalled wondering why he would have such a large holdall to carry his tools in. Either way, he didn't stop, and the next time he saw Green was at an identity parade. He said, quote, When I first went in, I was pretty certain I recognised him, but when I asked him to turn to the left, I was 100% sure I had a mental picture in my mind of this chap. End quote. Now, I've never been asked to pick anyone out of a police lineup, but I do wonder whether there's a limit on what you can ask him to do. Because he's gone, uh, when he turned to his left, mm -hmm. then what, lift up your right foot? No, higher, hop, flap your arms like a bird. Oh, sorry, officer, I don't recognise any of them. <laughs> That's like the Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> I brought me a Nine-Nine when he gets them all to sing. Yes. <laughs> Green, in what I can only assume is another display of dim-wittedness, admitted to police that he'd been on that same stretch of motorway on that very day. Once again, I've never been a murderer, but I suspect I may lie about it. I think, though, that sometimes they admit to bits of it in the hopes that they can then talk the way out of it. So they kind of go, oh, yeah, I was in the area because, you know, obviously someone's seen me in the area. I was in the area, but that wasn't me. I cleaned the bathroom, but <laughs> covered the rest up with a rug. <laughs> yes. In October 1991, just two short years after leaving prison, having served time for the murder of Glennis Johnson... Malcolm Green stood in front of a jury charged with murder for the second time. The jury at Bristol Crown Court heard how it was believed that Green had attacked Clive in a sitting room of his ground floor flat at 11 Luxton Square, hitting him around a dozen times on the head with something similar to a hammer, giving him multiple fractures. God, that's got to take some force as well yeah. to fracture a skull. Yeah, definitely. And I'm not being funny, I know it's not the same thing again, but I was making fudge earlier and I was trying to beat the fudge mixture and I was knackered. 
Green had then taken apart the body, with blood trails being found up the stairs. The body was then put into two separate bags and transported to the bypass using his girlfriend's car, the cheeky sod. In the words of prosecution barrister Paul Chad QC, quote, it was deposited where they would quickly be found alongside two highways in Wales, end quote. If hiding the bags poorly wasn't enough, one of the holes was traced back and found to belong to Green himself. When it came to describing the method of disposal of the corpse, the court heard from pathologist Dr Stephen Ledbetter, who told the court, quote, The head was removed neatly by cutting through the soft tissue of the neck and through a part of the voice box, end quote. He went on to reveal that the dissections made were neat, with little damage or tearing to soft tissue. The jury heard the evidence, including the sighting by Robert Clark, the admission by Green himself that he'd been the one who had seen Clive alive last, as well as the fingerprints on the bags. After a trial lasting seven days, Green was found unanimously guilty of murder. The judge, Mr Justice Rose, not a very judgy name, summed up, finishing by saying that Green was a very dangerous man. Green, for his part, twice interrupted a judge to calmly say, I did not kill Clive Tully. The judge passed down a recommended sentence of 25 years, which the Home Office later amended, stating it was too lenient, and that Green must spend the rest of his life in jail. And that is the case of Malcolm Green, the body in the bags killer. What are your thoughts? Do you agree with the Home Secretary that Green should never be released? And based upon the fact that Green used his own bag and failed to clean up by just placing rugs over the blood spatters, um, do you think that Green wanted to be caught? Or was he just a bit dim? We'll discuss this in the Patreon-only Sublime Extra Time. But you can let us know your thoughts. You can email us. You can get me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com or Elaine at Elaine at sublimetruecrime.com Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Again, just search for Sublime True Crime. If you're enjoying the series, please do leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one, please. As it helps us to reach more people. And we're a little attention whores and love it. Yep. Um, if you want to leave us a review, you can do it at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. STC as in Sublime True Crime. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. Don't forget to check out Julia's podcast, Always Time for True Crime. And don't forget to subscribe to us if you're not already doing so. And if you can think of any cases that you'd like us to cover, please do let us know. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.